You're listening to Innovating Smart, stories of sustainability for tomorrow's innovators. Explore all of our stories at innovatingsmart.org. What is smart? Smart is system savvy, managed intelligently, adaptive, regenerative, and trusted. These are our design principles for a sustainable world. This is Sue Liebeck of Innovating Smart, and today we're talking with Paul Masson. Paul is the founder and managing director of the Strategic Alliances Resources Network, or StarNet. Hello, Paul. Thanks for meeting with us. Hi, Sue. Nice to meet you again. So, tell us, Paul, what is the innovative business that you're in? We have innovated a way to organize individuals to innovate in a group. That's what we've done. And a core of it is organizing R&D, but actually we define innovation as any novel combination of knowledge to get to any advance that we need to get to. So what we've innovated is a way to organize it, and I'll describe that as we go along. Awesome. I've heard you use the term innovation alliance. Is that the core organizational structure that you use? And if so, what is an innovation alliance? We use that term to describe the fact that we organize alliances of, of organizations, universities, government, and industry, and they pool their resources together for an innovation. That's an innovation alliance. What makes an alliance is like any worldwide alliance is it's temporary. It's for mm. a very particular purpose to achieve a particular objective. Does it have to be temporary? That's critical. It doesn't have to be, but making it objective focused Yes. permits the Alliance to have a very clear purpose, mm. a very clear organization structure, and a lot of motivation of everybody to hit the goal. Mm. So there's power in that temporariness. There's power in being focused on an objective and achieving it. And there's a self-discipline on saying it's temporary because don't assume you're going to be here forever. Right. If you want to continue to work this way together, you're going to have to complete the objective and then get endorsed again by all the stakeholders that support you to do it again. Right, right, which is really what always happens, but it sort of makes that very explicit organizationally. One of the organizational innovations is not to create permanent organizations. One of the organizational innovations is to literally create the equivalent of an organization for a specific purpose, manage it to that purpose, and then say we can either shut it down or we can continue. Mm. So what it means is that folks in the organization are not paid and vetted and they are not set up to have the organization have its own self-interest to exist forever. Mm. Mm. So it's not about the organization existing, it's about doing the innovation process. Yeah. And the way we do that is the uniqueness of the organizing approach is everybody is a representative from another organization. They have a home base to go back to. Ah. That central organization has no purpose for permanently existing. Say more about that. And, and while you do, tell us about how innovation alliances are structured and if there's multiple types, what are the multiple types? Well, the other big innovation that we've done is we have designed a method to combine together by legal agreement federal and state government organizations along with universities and companies 
into one of these temporary organizations. Mm -hmm. And I, when I say by their engagement, I don't mean they're funding it. I mean as a participating member. So we actually have a structure by which we can have a federal government organization, a lab, to be DOE lab, sign into agreement in which Lawrence Livermore lab specifically would sign in along with a university group and five companies and pool all their resources together. The uniqueness and the innovation of the organization is rather than assume that they're separate segments of the society and they hand off to one another, we eliminate that handoff concept. We mm. bring them together for a single mission, under a single vision, to achieve certain objectives, and then shut down, and then go back to their home organization. That sounds like a very powerful model. Now, who, who funds these? How does an Innovation Alliance get funded? An Innovation Alliance is financially structured like a membership organization. Okay. But with two levels. Mm -hmm. One is a core membership to achieve some common objectives such as reduced energy usage and transportation. And the other level is funding for specific innovation teams. You could have an innovation team work on batteries. You could have an innovation team work on metrics for energy. You could even have an innovation team work on the financing models for the investment banks to finance the startup companies in that sector. Whatever is the innovation we need to advance to the goal. So you're saying that some of the funding is to the aggregate result, but some of the funding is actually contributed, targeted specifically to support a innovation that's a piece of the aggregate result. Exactly. And then the reason for the innovation of this organizational concept itself is there are always four levels to it, starting with a very strategic level that is visionary, a management level that translates that vision to an actual multi or work plan. Mm -hmm. And then the key thing is what we call an integration team. Mm -hmm. Yes. An integration team that works literally a level between management and each of these individual work teams where we let wild ideas run and we fund lots of ideas in the work teams, but we say to them, your piece has to fit together. It's a creative constraint, ultimately. Exactly. And the other key thing that we do in organization is we actually make the relationship between the integration team and the work teams a representative democratic one. Say more about that. Each work team is organized by a topic. Uh -huh. Companies, universities, government labs joined by topic team. Each team elects its technical engineering leader. Mm-hmm and each team elects its representative to the integration team. All right. They have to agree among themselves who is a leader. All right. And they have to agree among themselves who is a good representative to that. When you do that, on a human systems level, a clan forms. A and what a, forms? A clan forms. A clan. A clan forms. The uh, data bus clan. Okay. okay. The energy systems clan the battery clan mm -hmm. and all of those clans like any human clan has a leader and then they have in a sense like their shaman mm -hmm. who carries their message to all the collection of shamans mm -hmm. who carry the collective spirit together so in essence we actually copy really a simple model it's been around for 50,000 years this is how humans organize yes we organize in families then we organize in clans but the clans actually, which is what's happened 50,000 years, establish alliances with one another.
Right. And they send representatives from their clans to those councils. You know, when I think of clan and I think of some of the other words you're using, I think of trust and loyalty. Right. Is that what tends to develop? What tends to develop actually is a common value set mm. around achieving a common objective. Mm -hmm. So if we take it back to the simple purpose of innovation, our organizing innovation is to copy that natural human nature of how we organize at one level mm -hmm. with the discipline of systems engineering integration at another level mm -hmm. with the vision of visionary support and direction and resource and all the natural balance of competition cooperation. But the other organizing distinction of what we do is in that same project are representatives of every economic and social sector, central government, regional government, academia, and industry. And we even have structures that include big working councils of NGOs. Does it ever get to be difficult for those very disparate players to come together and create a common value set? Or does it emerge kind of organically? So here's another interesting element. If we are retained, as we are as a firm, to organize an innovation alliance, it's because some leaders already see a need to achieve something together in common. They don't know quite how to go about doing it. They've already met one another mm -hmm. at a trade association. They've already met one another at a government symposia. Right. Um, and they've already said to one another, we're not quite sure how to go about doing CO2 sequestration. We're not really quite sure how to go about creating fuels from biomass in a way that it can work in our distribution systems. We're not quite sure. To, and, they, and those trade associations already have specific task force working on this. Mm -hmm. But pooling your innovation together is something separate because in the private sector they're motivated to do it individually, protect their intellectual property and not share it. Right. The organizational structure that we have come up with, the way we write the rules and the way we use human motivation to a common bond creates a balance between the competitive effort which we permit to happen at a very bottom level with a democratic teaming effort, with a cooperative effort at the top. So how is intellectual property managed? It's managed at two levels. Um, we have a set of, um, most innovations really are a function of pooling a bunch of knowledge in a study, running a bunch of tests about it, and generating the results. Some of those tests and some of those results de facto represent common systems, and we call those guidelines and those guidelines are used to set structures for standards and certification of products and technology. So it's a guideline for something that may become a copyright. Mm -hmm. At that level it's a group ownership. When it's common it's group ownership. So we have joint and several patents, commonly held copyrights or copyright held by a nonprofit entity where everybody gets a full paid irrevocable full-use license commercially because they contributed to it. Mm -hmm. But at another level we actually incent individual teams to organize and actually present competing innovation ideas. Mm -hmm. And we actually permit a team to break off and convince the most senior management of the team give us a year and a small block of money and let us innovate our own because we think we can do something different. And we're willing to put our own extra money into it 
and we three organizations are willing to actually just hold that patent among ourselves. And if the other senior scientists and engineers say, gee, we don't think it's possible, then we give them the ability to do that on their own, and then they get to have their own patent. So they take that extra risk and they get that extra reward. The amount of risk you take financially, sharing equipment, sharing ideas, sharing market research, sharing all of that, is a direct function of how much reward you can have. But again, the really interesting thing is even that team has to have a representative to the systems team. Right. No getting, no getting around that systems team. No getting around the fact that whatever innovation you have has to fit into a group. It has to fit into our national legacy systems. It has to fit into how businesses finance. Mm -hmm. It has to fit into how training is done mm -hmm. at companies, which has to work backwards to the curricula of universities and junior colleges. Mm -hmm. It has to fit into how HR reviews are done. It's all got to fit. So it's kind of like the potential obstacles to adoption are actually um, solved at the collective design state. They stage. are exactly. Or, which is equally important, enough information is gathered about those collective limitations that the teams down here say, this is not feasible. We should stop this approach. Right. We now know where to stop spending our money on this solution and now try a different one. We've now learned enough about the collection of redoing curriculums, refinancing, doing HR, supply chain alignment, warehousing, we can't do it. So, but since we are still all bonded by a common objective and we're still together, let's try plan B, C, or D, or F. Let's try four or five or six things. And you do that together. We do it together, and it's a constant iterative process. So I've had one uh, big alliance, for example, where that great value that came out of realizing where it didn't fit was literally the key value that some huge corporations said they had never seen done collectively before. They themselves didn't know why a collective industry direction of a certain line of innovation wasn't working until they pooled all of the limitations together. Mm -hmm. All the suppliers came together. Mm -hmm. All of the universities and trainers came together. And then they finally saw it together and they said, this is why this whole approach that we're taking this years will work. But now that we're together, let's go back to two or three others that have been presented at Symposia. And let's try those instead, because we've got all of us together. And that can be just as valuable, because from the point of view of a CFO or manager, they say, we've now saved millions of dollars in our innovation budget and R&D, because we now know why we can't go down this road anymore. So it sounds like that in addition to pooling knowledge to ultimately create an innovation, you're also, as an early stage of that, you're pooling knowledge to get a really thorough design brief. You exactly. really know what the creative constraints are. You really know what is the problem that needs to be solved. One of the great innovation issues we face in America today is called the smart grid. Yes. The smart grid actually is in the process in some ways right now of being collectively mapped. But actually, until we have some parameters of what we define as the smart grid, we won't know how every party can inflect it or what innovations will draw. Another thing we're facing in America right now is the issue of how do we grow food and actually use less water, pollute less air, use less material, and use less energy. It's called sustainable growing. But only last year did a private sector group organize and finally have the USDA endorse the concept of defining what is sustainable growing. Mm. They don't know. Until they put it together, 
we don't know what that is, okay? And that group is only going to define it. They're not going to innovate on it. Okay. Okay, so part of the distinction of our organizing approach is that's a standards, de that's a definition body and a standard setting body. Right. They're not organized to then further pool resources and innovate. Right. That's what we do. They're not using these various teaming structures. They're using one big circle here, but they're not organizing down into individual innovation teams, and they're not creating incentives for people to come up with, how do I flash pasteurize certain material so that I can reuse it as organic? How do I create uh, foundation structures in ag fields to collect water at a corner to recycle it as gray? Now, those technologies are out there. Those individual companies are out there. There are trade groups out there. There's teams out there. But they're not being pulled together in a way that the big upstream operators can say, I know what might work for me, but I don't know what works here, here, and here, and I don't know how it fits with sustainable ag. Mm -hmm. And it would really help me if there was a definition that I could just give to a contractor to lay the cement foundation and say, this is what I mean by a foundation that can collect the water and deal with its toxicity to be sustainable. Those don't exist. Got it. Well, um, I have a few more questions for you here. Um, tell me about what kinds of things, you answered some of this, but say a little bit more about what kinds of things can be achieved through innovation alliances that might not be achievable otherwise. Are there things that without an alliance or something like an alliance, this may never happen? Well, there are three basic things that are achieved at actually the innovation level. And then there's a few more things achieved really at a national and almost international level. And the three big things are very simply time savings. And that is when we want to innovate sustainable growing. Mm -hmm. We have certain individual companies and individual university work and individual and they already meet at many symposiums and many groups, many task force. But forming it into an alliance with an objective actually saves time at actually bringing the knowledge together, trying the integration, incenting the pieces and seeing what will work. The second thing is that when you organize that way you save money. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that in addition to the symposium events that exchange the ideas and collaborate scientifically, you're actually connecting them to the end users and seeing and testing. So the cost sharing that goes among the organizations saves money. Right. The third big thing that the Innovation Alliance needs is what we call the compatibility and systems piece. And that's based on a simple premise. As we sit here today in the year 2011, we stand on over just about 200 years of really foundational industrial revolution innovations, whether it's the railway lines, roadbeds, asphalt, rubber, the chip in that computer, the mechanisms in that camera, the sound recognition, layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of innovation. And the reality is, another layer of innovation can't be added unless it's on that foundation. Mm -hmm. So how do those systems fit together? Why can't we easily upgrade every single rail line in the country? 
Well, there's reasons why the roadbeds are built a certain way, mm-hmm. why the steel structure is built in a certain way, and why the cost structure, the business models, relative to piecing it all together, that say it's not that easy to do. Why can't we literally put planes in the air and give them the information to the pilot so the pilot knows exactly where he or she is relative to other pilot? Because we have a foundation for how, how this air system operates that requires the pilot to call somebody on the radio to say, tell me on your screen where I am and give me permission to go from here to there. Even though we can put in every single plane in America today a simple display that big on 3D that will tell the pilot exactly where they are, exactly relative to every other plane within a 300 mile radius, and give them a path to exactly fly among them and save 6 to 10% of gas. But we can't because the foundation of innovation does that. But what an alliance can do are bring together all the foundation operators and all the legacy system operators with all the new concepts tucked down and resolve them. So the third value of an innovation alliance is system solution. Right. It's really the system's fit. It's the difference between inventing an individual advance and an innovation that gets applied. Right. America's probably rich in innovations. And frankly, a lot of us think we're really rich in innovation. What we lack is the ability to marry your innovation to our foundation. But our country is going to face it more difficult, with a greater difficulty than any country in the world, because we have more of it. Well, we do. Right. So the other thing that Innovation Alliance does is something quite interesting. At another level, it has a social dynamic impact, which is really interesting. Right now, we organize ourselves around the country with you and me, Sue, meeting and we work in the private sector. We might go to Stanford or to Berkeley or some other university and meet with somebody in an education sector, and then we're in a separate environment. And then we might go to a government building and meet somebody there, and then we might go to a nonprofit. Well, we actually think and operate in our society in very distinct sectors. And when we're sort of offline and don't have the podcast on, we have a tendency to grouse about one another. Okay. We tend to say, ah, no. you know, those government bureaucrats, they're stupid. Or the government say, ah, those private sector guys, they're greedy son of a guns. Oh, those academics, they live in an ivory tower. Now, we've evolved a phenomenal system of these separations of institutions with separate missions and capabilities. But we don't have very many venues where we bring them together to actively work together on a targeted solution. We have plenty of task force. We have plenty of advisory commissions. We have the National Research Council, right? We have plenty of government commissions. We have state advisory boards. We have tons of advisory boards for the state of California. But if you were to say, how many projects are there in the state of California that are not in a permanent organization that has an interest in continuing, that are solely to deploy some innovation to reduce water usage and improve rainwater distribution in the state, you'd say, well, there are some. There's some tests in the Water Resources Board, but actually to convert 15% of the Central Valley to comprehensive rainwater systems, we actually don't have anything like that. There's stuff at the university, UC Davis is a test. There's some great stuff from the Orange County District, Water District. There's some phenomenal stuff from the private sector, but there's nothing to and part of the reason there's nothing together is actually on a social economic basis. There's a tendency for us to bitch about one another in our separate sectors. 
But when you're required to come together to solve something, you have to work to lay that aside. So one of the premises of an innovation alliance actually is we live in a time right now where there's been a lot of training about how to bitch, complain, and fight with one another. And there's not a lot of training about how to listen, communicate, exchange information, and resolve with one another, whether it's a compromise or new solution. And the funny thing is, you don't come up with a novel idea or insight in innovation unless you first meet, exchange, listen, and think. But if you meet, exchange, and the exchange is, I hate you, you're stupid, or when you weren't there, or that's running in my subconscious in the meeting, you're not going to exchange enough information, you're not going to think, and you're not going to solve. Or if you come to the meeting and say, the only outcome in this meeting could be either your ox is gored or my ox is gored, you're not going to exchange, communicate. So the other thing that interesting happens in an innovation alliance is you actually meet and solve problems together in a specific, well-managed effort with specific milestones and really clear structures that require you to communicate and understand and agree. I've had some of my clients that I've done training after the training come up to me afterwards and thank me for it because they said it actually solved problems in their marriage. Huh? They actually took that and they took it home and they tried some of the techniques with their spouse and with their kids. And I had one guy literally crying. Crying and saying, I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. He said, you're right. We spend, I was told for eight hours of the day, organizationally, to compete with everybody else. And I took that for my four hours at home with my wife and my kids. And mm -hmm. I didn't think about it. Mm -hmm. He said, but you're right. My job inside my company is to defend what we call our crown jewels of intellectual property. And all I did was the same thing at home. Mm -hmm. And I didn't practice anything else. So innovation alliances provide a structure for managing the human side of innovation, that behavior-changing side of innovation, which sometimes is the hardest part of all. Well, the interesting thing about innovation is there are some parts of innovation that actually draw the greed part of humanity, which is we make this big breakthrough and we're going to make a lot of bucks. There's another part of innovation that draws the leadership part of it that says, hey, we can make this whole system work. And there's another part of innovation that draws the person and says, ah, I finally found my spot in part of the system of innovation. So if we take a look at the elements of human nature, the other impact of innovation alliances, it's an organizing approach so that what we already experience nationally is a not uncommon and understandable legacy of a lot of differences. And as you and I speak right now in this podcast, we have a central government that only has funding to operate for two more weeks, as an example. It gives you a practice, a purpose, and a venue to be able to actually work to a common objective in a structure and processes and say, by the way, if you're here because you're really motivated to make money, you can. Go to a common team, go to a small team, propose an idea, do it. You still got to fit the overall objective, but if that's your motivation, there's a spot for you. It's just that it's not the only driving motivation. It's not going to drive everything, and it's not going to dictate to everybody what has to happen. So there's lots of different incentives for whatever your whatever um, whatever would move you or your organization to participate. Um, sure. There's a 
space for that? I'd love to say that we came up with the organizing human systems model, but actually it's Darwin. Darwin. <laughs> thank you, Darwin, and predecessors Locke and Hume, and thank you to the modernists, and thank you to Aristotle. You go back and you do all of that thinking, you can see all these basic ideas. Why humans form into groups and form alliances, and how those alliances achieve objectives. And some leaders throughout history have been good at forming alliances, and a bunch of others are not effective. That's it. So there's aspects of this work that both on the success side and the challenge side that are just the most natural thing in the world. Sure. But right now, Sue, we have our political leaders centrally, our state leaders by region who need jobs, and our private sector leaders saying the thing that's going to save us nationally is innovation. You notice that? Yes. Did you notice during the president's speech when he said that, the Republican language in the audience, to be frank, the podcast was not negative, that they agreed? And yet, they're asking us in the private sector, how the heck do we do it? Department of Commerce is not going to form them. Republican Party and the Democratic Party are not going to form them. The state of California is not. Trade associations are not going to. Who's going to form them? So who is going to form them? Organizations like ours who develop the idea, proselytize it, demonstrate its efficacy, show that we can do it effectively, and then disseminate our methods openly to both public and private sector and academia, will we find a way to be able to also run a business through this innovative idea that generates the revenues we need to operate and takes care of ourselves and our family. You seem really passionate about this work. How did you get into it? I got into it indirectly at the very beginning of my career when I began as a banker to organize syndicates. I got into the concept of it when I was a young man growing up in the West and I noticed when I went from parts of the American West where there was a lot of compatibility to the community to other parts of the American West that were highly segment, segmented and segregated. And I remember mm -hmm. going to the segregated city and saying, cutting out a lot of smart people from solving our problems. So as a kid, I didn't understand. Why don't we take all these smart people here who know all the answers and we basically say we're not going to listen to them? It makes no sense. We're just shooting ourselves in the foot. It makes sense from the point of view of history. But it didn't make sense for that moment of people looking forward. You know, one of the great negotiators in history said, you can sit at a table and you can decide, and you have to make a decision. Are you going to resolve an issue of the past or resolve an issue of the future? You can't do both. You resolve an issue of the past, you take care of yourself, your own wounds, your egos. You resolve an issue of the future, you take care of your kids and the next generation. Right. You've got to make a decision. So that's how I got into it by passion, and then I got into it by form as I looked for different ways to apply the knowledge I had to both make revenue for me and my family, as well as apply something that I knew had meaning and passion to. And this is what I came up with. But I'm not alone. <laughs> there are four other people I've worked with off and on for 20 years. Every single one of those has contributed the idea. One of the people I worked off and on with as an active cost-sharing partner, you're not talking with me about change. So to be honest, reality is I'm just not the coordinator or manager of a network. I'm more like the learning amateur of an orchestra leader. I've been fortunate enough to have great people who know about human systems, technology development, commercialization, government management, contracting, law and intellectual property, 
come and work with me and say something about your picture motivates us. We're willing to be part of your network. Which is why in reality, while I'm the managing director of StarNet, I'm a guy coordinating a bunch of people who believe in something that know we can both make money and have a purpose. That also makes me passionate to be able to know that I can try to hold myself accountable to my own claims of what it means to run an alliance in a network. Because I learn every day trying to do it. So I'm passionate about the innovation value for the next generation. I'm passionate about the alliance part. And I'm passionate about finding a way to tap the elements of human nature and simply reapply them in a way that we can make all of our lives better. And I also enjoy doing it effectively make enough money to take care of myself and my family. That's it. Well, and I need to say I'm delighted to be a new part of the StarNet Network. And I look forward to um, developing innovation alliances with you going forward. Not to mention our annual party where we take the entire island of Lanai for two weeks. That's a big draw. To <laughs> That's why yes, we're exactly here. Right. That's why we're here. Thank you for coming clean. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for your time and thank you for your insights. It's Great. been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Sue. Bye-bye. Thanks to Paul Masson for talking with us today. Visit StarNet at starnetllc.net. I am Sue Liebeck. This story was produced by myself and by Alex Kawashima, Natalie Forsyth, and Christopher Gonzalez. Music courtesy of Triplexity. With support from Plant Trust, Preservation of Land for Agricultural Needs, Sustainovation, Business for the World We Share, Silicon Valley Innovation Associates, and Starnet, Harnessing the Power of Partnership. This has been Innovating Smart bringing you stories of sustainability for tomorrow's innovators. Explore all of our stories at innovatingsmart.org.